Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Oh, different music. That's exciting. That can mean only one thing. That this isn't a regular episode of Murder Mile, but this is another episode of The Extra Mile. An interesting behind-the-scenes look at what Murder Mile is all about and how it is made. If you're new listeners to Murder Mile, it's probably best if you don't listen to this episode just yet. Maybe go back and listen to some of the earlier episodes, like episode 1, Denmark Place Fire, uh, episode 5, Admiral Duncan, or maybe just the last episode that went out, which was the Alexander Litvinenko murder, which was episode 20. To regular listeners, thank you for coming back. I really appreciate you tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed the last episode of The Extra Mile, which was very much an in-depth look into how Murder, Mile, uh, how Murder Mile was created, where I started, and the basic components of making up the Murder Mile. Uh, in this episode, it's going to be an extension of that. This is very much how I research each case. Uh, and to focus on this, I'm going to tell you a lot about the case I've been researching this week, this week, which will be coming up, oh god, where? Probably episode 27, 28, 29, and 30. Yes, it's a big one. It's a biggie. It was going to be just a one-parter, then a two-parter, then a three-parter, now it's a four-parter. It's massive. I've literally been sp spending like the last two weeks in the National Archives going through the original police investigation files. So in this episode, what I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to explain how I research most of these cases, especially the ones that are, you can only really get access to the proper credible details in the National Archives, and just explain kind of the thought process to ha how to unravel the case. Um, don't worry, there won't be any spoilers in here. Uh, I'm deliberately going to talk in very vague terms because this story is so amazing. I just don't want to ruin a single moment for you. Also, I haven't written it yet. I've researched it. My head is bursting with information. Uh, so I'm still trying to work out the angles of the case. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, let's get started. Where have I been all week? The National Archives in Kew. Uh, 
as you probably heard in episodes eight and nine when I was doing Ginger Ray, I was at the National Archives. It's it's a, a huge, monstrous kind of building in uh, Kew, down in uh, just south of London near Richmond. And where it is, it's like a national repository for all the really important documents like uh, Magna Carta is there. Uh, all, all kind of... See how shitty I am at history. All I could come up with was Magna Carta. And it's probably not there. It's probably elsewhere. I just invented it. Uh, I didn't invent Magna, Magna Carta. That's a lie. Right. Uh, so all the in, important information is there, but also police investigation files. After a case is wrapped up and it's finished, the police uh, get their investigation files, they put them in their archive, and then finally they get sent to the National Archive. And the judge normally puts a moratorium on those cases, saying, um, for the sake of the, the families, the victims, and the, the generations beyond, uh, these cases have to be put away for sometimes 50 years, sometimes 75, sometimes 100, sometimes more than 100. So... Only after a certain period of time can you get access to these files. Um, the case that we're going to deal with soon, um, if you don't want to know the name of the case, switch off now. If you do, keep listening. The case that we're going to deal with is the Blackout Ripper. Some of you may know his name, some of you may not. But he was a spree killer who started killing women and... Uh, Regular women and prostitutes, oh, I don't know how to explain that. Uh, I'm just going to say women, if that's okay. I don't want to offend people. He was he was uh, a spree killer who attacked women, some of whom were prostitutes. That's better, isn't it? Yeah. Some of whom were prostitutes uh, during 1942, during the cover of when the Blitz was going on and there was blackouts everywhere. I won't say any more about him, uh, but that just gives you a good overview of the period and uh, what he was up to. He was a maniac. He was uh, the violence he he uh, inflicted on these women was horrific, but because it was wartime and because obviously people were tense, uh, because they had bombers going over and it was you know a lot of poverty going on, a lot of endemic crime, people were terrified. So the government and the press quite wisely decided to keep a lot of this under wraps. Um, and interestingly, after World War Two, World War Two had finished, it just kind of stayed that way. People just people had better things to think about, so they actually almost entirely forgot about the Blackout Ripper. Uh, he's one of these killers who people just don't really know that much about. If you can hear, I'm, there's a boat going past. As you know, I live on a boat. There's a boat going past. There you go not a sound effect so blackout ripper uh, fascinating case so uh, what i'll be doing is doing you a four-part episode going into the full details of the case so basically i've spent the last two weeks going through literally it's about 1600 pages of detailed notes um uh, all from the original metropolitan metropolitan police file and it contains everything i'll go into that very shortly uh, what's the National Archives like? Uh, it's high security. It's tough. You've got to get pre-clearance to get in there. When you go in there, you have to decant everything out of your bag. They give you a transparent bag to put everything in. You can't wear a coat. You can't wear jumpers. 
you can't really have anything with pocket with uh, um, pockets. They'd normally ask you to turn out your pockets if you can, because uh, they don't want you taking anything in, uh, which could destroy the files, and they don't want you taking any files out or any pieces of paper either. Uh, if you have notebooks, they go through every page of the notebook to make sure there's nothing in there. You can't you can't really take pens. You can take pencils. When you decant your bag into like a plastic bag, they do that so they can see everything that's in there. And if you take a laptop, you have to show them the inside of the laptop. You have to open up the book, not break the laptop, um, to show them that there's nothing in there as well. And then they seat you down in a numbered place. They give you a set number of files, and there are guides walking around all the time telling you, do that, don't do that. It's quite strict, but it's great. It's very peaceful you're surrounded by people who are basically historians and archivists who who love what they do who like me who are excited by files and geeky stuff like that and we just sit there in silence for like 10 12 16 hours and uh, just read but it's great you get hands on some really great stuff so um what i'm gonna do on my uh the murder mile true crime podcast discussion group on facebook what i tend to do is throw onto there some interesting pictures what I'll do this week is throw some pictures of what the actual case files look like. You've probably got something in your head. You're probably thinking, oh, I bet they're nice, nice box files, very neat, very organized with a um, like an order and a synopsis on the top and everything's in alphabetical order. You'd be wrong. You'd be absolutely wrong. Uh, I just picked up not all of the files, about 1600 pages. And none of them are in any order. In fact, because the Blackout Ripper deals with multiple murders and also attempted murders, they're all contained together. They look like they should be in separate files, but they're not. They're all lumped together in big files. And it's many of it is handwritten. It's in no particular order. There's no synopsis at the front. There's no page that actually gives you a precy of what the case is about, all the relevant dates, all the relevant people. It's just a mishmash. It really is. But what it does contain is the original witness statements. So uh, either typed up by the police or written by the person themselves, sometimes handwritten. Um, Sometimes, as in the case of Frederick Field, who we dealt with in episodes 8 and 9, 18 and 19, you get the original confession. And in the case of the Blackout Ripper, not to give too much away, but you get both confessions. Sometimes, kill sometimes killers make multiple confessions, so you get all of those as well. Not only that, you get the autopsy report, which is always fascinating, gives you very good details and insight into people's lives. Uh... Fingerprints, crime scene photos, toxicology reports, uh, police memos. So memos between various policemen uh, telling each other what they think about the case. As well as the sometimes the original court transcripts and even better. This blew my mind with episode uh, 16, the Richard Rhodes Henley report. Uh, Richard Rhodes Henley case, which was the psychological profile of Richard Rhodes Henley. Fascinating. They're very hard to find, but sometimes if a prisoner is going to be executed, i.e. in Britain pre-1965, they will always do a psychological report on the prisoner just to see whether they're mentally capable. Um, just just to see whether if they are mentally deficient, because then you can't execute someone who is mentally deficient. 
Unfortunately, most of these uh, documents are handwritten uh, and are just a nightmare. They are so badly written. One of them, not giving away spoilers, it's in the Blackout Ripper case. It was a really key piece of one of the murders. And it said someone had handwritten and it was taken me like five seconds to read every single word. And one of one of the pieces said outside of her door was found a and I was like shit I can't read that it was literally a squiggly line and I literally I I sat there for about half an hour staring at these three words to work out what it actually was they said because this was the key point they didn't know that someone was in the room and that they'd been murdered until they could find out until I could see until they saw what was outside the door all I all I could read was uh, uh, uh. <laughs> took about half an hour. I managed to work out it was brown paper parcel. I know. Turned out not to be as important as I thought, but actually it proved to be a pivotal point in that case for me. So but that took half an hour and that was all handwritten. So how is Murder Mile researched? Well, what I try to do it's, sorry, I think I just burped then. That was really rude. Uh, what I tried to do with the case... So I've just had burger. I had a burger for breakfast, veggie burger, and a coffee. I know, it's not, not a good mix. What I tried to do... That was a cup of coffee. What I'm trying to do with this case is um, not just do you an overview, which is, I, I think could be quite boring if you just say that someone did this at some set time to these people, and these are the basic elements of the case this is what happened to them this is how they got murdered what i think is important is i think i mentioned this last time is to give you a really good insight into the person's lives do you know a person is literally just a sack of bones and meat really but it's when you start learning about their life you start learning about who they are their hopes and dreams that all of a sudden you could become interested and what I want is for you to become emotionally involved when you hear that this person is dead. If, if, if like with Ginger Ray, we spent a half, like the first half of the first episode, just learning about what a lovely lady she was, how she was sweet, how she had just she had a really beautiful smile. She would give money to people in need. She would give sweets to kids. She would take out. She had loads of kind of boyfriends, but all of them were kind of younger men who needed a mother figure. She was a mother figure in the community, and she was beautiful, and everybody loved her. And as soon as you know about that. I think that makes the case more, it makes it more interesting because all of a sudden you have a connection with that person. So that's what I try to do with all of these cases. It's not just about telling you the details. It's about telling you who this person is and taking it from there. Because often this happens with the press, doesn't it? Where some, the most you will get out of the press is that, it, say a young boy is stabbed. The most that you will get is his age his name, and that he had a promising future. And let's be honest, you could say that about anyone. And how do we know if someone has a promising future? It's it's irrelevant. It's just platitudes. It's bullshit. So anyway, what I try to do is learn more about the person's life by the details that you find within inside the murder files. For example, 
inside the murder files, quite often, uh, with the autopsy report, you'll get a toxicology report. Now, I know that you think toxicology, you probably think, well, we just learn, if someone's been poisoned, when, well, we just learn about uh, how they were poisoned. Were they, were they poisoned by arsenic? Or in the case of Litvinenko, were they po poisoned by polonium-210? That's what the toxicology report can tell you. But also, it can tell you a lot more. It can tell you whether the person is a drinker. It can tell you whether they're a casual drinker or a heavy drinker. It can tell you what they drank that night. It can tell you whether they take drugs. It can tell you whether they're ca like a casual smoker or a heavy smoker. In the case of uh, Frederick Fields and Nora Upchurch, that was kind of useful because we saw two cigarettes on the floor, no, one cigarette on the floor, one of which had lipstick, and we knew that Nora, Nora Upchurch was a smoker. It can also tell you whether they're on medic medication. Do they have any mental illnesses? Do they have any physical ailments? All of these can be useful in learning about someone's life. If someone has arthritis, that will tell us a lot about whether they're w walking slowly. Do you know? D do they suffer from mental illness? Are they on any special medication? Also, it can tell you about their diet. Um, with the the blackout ripper case, I w again, I won't go into spoilers. But in order to tell, because there was one of the ladies, see, see how vague I'm trying to be, I don't want to ruin it for you. In, or, in order to find out where this lady had been before she was mur murdered, because there was a gap of about eight hours between when she was murdered and when she was found, they saw her walking towards a restaurant and, someone, and one of the waitresses saw her go in, but no one remembers serving her, which in a busy restaurant is very possible. So in order to find out whether she had actually eaten there, they actually went around all of the restaurants in the area, the ones that were open, to find out what they'd served. The restaurant she went into that night had a special which mostly consisted of beetroot. And in her stomach was beetroot. Ta-da! Fantastic. Toxicology report was the thing that pinpointed exactly where she had been and at what time before she was murdered. That's why I love toxicology reports. Autopsy report, fantastic. You get to learn so much as well. You get to learn things that the press don't know about, things that I love. So on Murder Mile, things like weight, height, hair colour, eye colour, uh, the general frame, body mass. Um, you also get to learn whether they have had injuries. Or, or, sorry, I'm burping again. That's really rude. Injuries or kind of whether they've had operations before. Uh, at the Blackout Ripper case, quite a few of the ladies had already, um, because they were prostitutes, they'd already had their ovaries removed, which was kind of interesting. It was kind of like they'd, they'd been, they didn't want to make, they wanted to make sure they didn't get pregnant. So they uh, they had a, is that a forced hysterectomy? I'm not too sure. I'm a man. I don't know these things. Uh, but it's all really inter interesting stuff. You also learn whether they've got diseases, what diets they're on. Uh, as I've just said, the last meal that they've just eaten. Um, autopsy also gives a fantastic description of the wounds to the victim and this is something that I find really interesting is not just the types of wounds but with the autopsy report you can tell what wounds happened in what order so again no spoilers but with the blackout ripper because it was uh, Sir Bernard Spilsbury who was the um, the eminent 
a home office pathologist, basically from the 1920s to the, I think it was the start of the 1950s. We'll be doing a full episode on Sir Bernard Spilsbury soon. Uh, he was a home office pathologist who also did the um, the Ginger Ray case, and he did Dutch Layer as well. Um, and he very detailed with his notes. And what he could do is he could tell you exactly in what order the injuries happened. So it's fascinating. It's kind of he, he could tell which of the injuries happened while they were alive, whilst they they were the victims were unconscious, and which of those injuries were post mortem. So instead of you just seeing the victim and going, Wow, that is a bloody mess, that's horrific what he could do is go, Okay, first the killer came in and did this. This is how he made it this is how he, he, he knocked her unconscious, then he strangled her then he did this injury then this one and this one and this is the last thing he did which is fantastic it gives you a good timeline into uh the person's death death but also the kind of what is going on in the killer's mind especially in the blackout ripper case and in many cases killers are deluded they really don't they it's there's an arrogance about them they, they live in a special world where they're kind of like they won't admit to what they've done or or they they don't feel that they have to admit they, they don't see that they've done anything wrong so you can rarely get accurate information about the murders from the killer even though they were the only person there who's probably still alive you just can't get their information so the autopsy report is fantastic for giving you an insight into their lives um, in the Blackout Ripper case, we'll go into a lot of details about the autopsy and about the, the order of death, about what order the injuries happened. And these are vital to disseminating this case. Um, this is why it's been a long, long two weeks, because it's just literally looking at autopsy reports and going, oh, my God, my brain can't take it anymore. Especially when you're dealing with four autopsies at the, t at the same time. Oh, my head is fried. Um, going through, um, I have to say the police did a fantastic job on the Blackout Ripper case. Um, originally, originally starting with just one murder, then it then it was two, then three, then four, and those attempted murders, and all within very very sh very short period of time. And even though this was nineteen forties, and even though it was during World War Two, and they were under pressure, and they had very little resources, and they don't have the technology that we have today. They did a fantastic job, and they did a great job with witness statements. Now, in these files were all of the witness statements, and you could see how the police were thinking. They were thinking, they got statements from everyone. Literally, if someone was on the street at the right time, get a statement. If there was someone who knew the victim for any reason, get a statement. If, if anyone had received a letter from the killer or from the from one of the victims at any point get a statement literally they got so that's why there's literally hundreds of witness statements that i've been trawling through because they're the police did such a thorough job but in those statements sometimes you get you get real nuggets things that i absolutely adore that that the press could never pick up because they only do the things that you don't get in court transcripts which is what the press get a lot of their information from in court trials you get a precy of the case you don't get the details which is why i love witness statements and what you can learn from witness statements is the little details 
uh, such as like a person's routine, what they wore, what their physical description was, the, the, their personality, what kind of person they are. Because don't forget, this is if the victim's dead, how are you going to learn that? How are you going to learn by looking at a sack of meat and bones? So, for example, um, not to spoil things, uh, Blackout Ripper again, um, one of the victims, I got the police's uh, statement and the crime scene photos and I could see the crime scene, okay, and I could see what had happened to the victim. But what I needed to know was not what happened to her, her in uh, where she was because you could see that you could see how bloody she was and it was horrific and you could see the injuries and the autopsy re report told us everything but what i needed to know was how did we get to that point how did we get from the point where she met the killer to the point where he just before he killed her what was that journey and that's where the witness statements come in they they come in really useful so uh with this victim uh, she was seen by many other prostitutes on the street who'd seen her, who knew her. We were able to get a very clear timeline. Literally, because she's in a big, busy populace like uh, Piccadilly Circus, it could almost be minute by minute. And by cr cross-referencing all of these witness statements, you could say, OK, she was here at 10.30. She was here at 10.45. She was here at 11. She'd had this food in her stomach and it was part digested. So we know that she, when she was at Monaco's having dinner, she was there and that's accurate. And then you can kind of go, right, when when did she meet the killer? So it must have been at this point because we don't see her after this point. So say 1 a.m. We don't see her after 1 a.m. Neighbours heard her, her, heard her coming into her house with someone at, let's say, 1.15 perfect that's the last time they saw her come in no one ever saw her again now this is the important bit um witness statements tell us about her routine so with one of the victims again i'm being vague and i apologize for this but it's, it's for a good reason um one of the victims her husband said what she would do she would come in she would put her coat into the wardrobe into the right hand side she would always put her handbag into the wardrobe. When she came in, she'd close the doors. She'd lock it. This is when she was inviting guests into her, her bedroom because she was a prostitute, so inviting men in. She'd lock the door. She'd put the key on the table next to the wireless. And by so we knew that's her routine. So we knew that when she came in, she was comfortable. She was happy. We could see her clothes on the floor. Uh, sorry, on the chair. She'd taken off her clothes. She gently put them onto the armchair, which apparently she did a lot. She took off her hat. She took off her shoes. On the side, on the, uh, the mantelpiece, was a glass of stout, I believe, which had two lots of fingerprints on it. So that showed that not only was she happy, she was comfortable. She was having a drink with a man while she was there. They were sharing a glass, so that's a good sign. That shows that uh, he was obviously a nice man, or he gave the impression of being a nice man. The neighbour also said that there was music on, which is a great thing. It, it, uh, there was music on, they seemed to be enjoying themselves. And then the neighbour said, after about, about 20 minutes, uh, there was no more talking, she just heard music, and then the neighbour went to sleep. Which is interesting, that says a lot. That says that she was comfortable with the man she was with. And therefore, he must have... His attack on her, even though it was brutal, his attack on her must have come out of the blue. She must have not been expecting it at all. 
and he must have come across as really nice and polite and gentle and caring. Interestingly, I found other examples of uh, the Blackout Ripper with other ladies who he didn't murder. And their witness statements are fantastic. Not going to give anything away in this episode. Literally, when you hear the Blackout Ripper four-part episode, wow, you're going to hear some of these witness statements and you're going to go, wow, this guy is this guy is crazy but controlled. His self-control is unbelievable. But what it does is it gives you a fascinating insight into the secret world of prostitutes and the men who visit prostitutes. It, especially for the Blackout Ripper, or even with Frederick Fields, who we've just dealt with, it gives you an insight into their sexual habits, their needs, their desires, their issues. These prostitutes get to see things that the police will never see, that, um, that we will never see, that even the killer themselves won't even admit to. So this is, these are fascinating details that only can be gleaned from witness statements. So um, witness statements, all fabulous. They all give you different pieces of information about, about not just the victim, but also the killer themselves. Um, but they take hours to literally dig out these tiny pieces of information. But all of them are vital. Psychological profiles, as we've mentioned before, psychological profiles are really useful. Um, you don't always get them in a case. Quite often they're under wraps. Um, uh, but sometimes you get lucky. Uh, with the Blackout Ripper, we did. With um, Frederick Field, we did as well. And what it does is it... And Richard Rhodes Henley as well, as we mentioned before, that was the moment where I was reading that and explained that when he was in his teenage years, his father had caught him masturbating. Uh, and instead of just saying, Joe, mm, you know, it's, it's, it's a regular thing, son, young boys do it, you'll grow out of it. His father put him into a leather kind of chastity belt, which fastened his arms to his uh, waist. And he spent like a year asleep like that. Every time we go to bed, he'd be put into this belt. <coughs> which didn't actually stop him from masturbating. It made it more of an exciting thing to want to masturbate, which spiralled him out of control. Um, in psychological reports, they go into really good details, like um, family history, um, whether there was any uh, childhood abuse, whether the person has sexual issues, whether they've got a criminal past, uh, is there any kind of um, head trauma, childhood trauma, um, it kind of it's nice they go into fine details to try and work out where this person's perversions or criminal intent comes from sometimes it's useful sometimes not in the case of the blackout ripper not he seemed to be uh, i won't go into spoilers won't be any spoilers but um he seemed to be a man who was very in control of himself so when he was sitting down with the psychologist to go through his family history, I think he told them really what he wanted them to hear, not what the truth was. So whereas Richard Rhodes Henley, I think he was quite an upset man. He didn't want to be the man that he was. Whereas the Blackout Ripper, I think he knew. I think, I think he, he felt this was a game. He felt that he was better than the police. Um... But you'll learn a lot more about that in the, in the Blackout Ripper case. Coming soon, very exciting. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Um... <clears throat> Sometimes the killers uh, in the files are confessions, as I've mentioned. Confessions are really useful, not because it gives you all of the information, but because it gives you the criminal's perception of themselves. It gives you their perception of their victims, the crimes that happened. Um, and in the case of Frederick Fields and even the Blackout Ripper, you can see how over each subsequent confession, how the story changes. How, how, <coughs> excuse me, how kind of they believe one thing, but actually something else happened. And you can see where, especially with the Blackout Ripper, you can see where he goes along with the facts to a point and then he diverges very fast. And then he tries to bring himself so many times into back, back to the truth, but then he can't help but create a world of bullshit around everything. So confessions are fabulous. They're, they're not really uh, an accurate representation of what happened. But they give you more of an insight into what the killer really thinks. But then again, confessions are rare. How often do the killers actually confess? I know that they do in things like Murder, She Wrote and Columbo. And you know, every Bond film, when when the, prison, when the, uh, the villain goes, Oh, this is my big secret plan. In real life, killers don't do that. The second they're caught, why should they confess? Unless their heart is really heavy and they're like, I need to tell someone quick. Most of the time it's like, meh, fuck the police. Do you know, they can work it out for themselves. Um, quite quite often in uh, police files as well, um, you'll get letters from locals who believe that they know who the suspect is. Um, you would think that the police would destroy these. Uh, they don't. Um, and what's amazing with this case is the police do actually take them very seriously. Um, with the Ginger A case, there was one, oh my God, it gives you an insight into their life. I, whether I mentioned it last time, I can't remember, but the, the, someone has said, I think that the killer of Ginger A was this guy called Johnny, I can't remember, someone called Johnny, and basically the person said, um, Johnny did it, he's an aggressive man, and he's a black man. That was it. He's aggressive and he's a black man. And he was he was introduced to Ginger Ray by this by this Chinese guy. It's like it, it tells you a lot about the era where they just go, well, he's black and he, that guy's Chinese. 
they, they must be the killers. That's it. Um, but with the with the blackout ripper case, fantastic. People were given insights into the case. Most of the time, they were wrong. They'd read details in the press, and the details in the press were wrong. Therefore, the, pe the people they were suspecting were wrong. Mostly, quite often, the people that they would suspect, or they would say, "This is the person I suspect of being the blackout ripper." Uh, was normally an ex-boyfriend or something like that normally people just want to get people they hate into trouble um, also inside the file is crime scene photos oh <gasps> exciting crime scene photos you're probably thinking oh you bet you look at them and you go oh that's fantastic this contains all the information you need uh, unfortunately not uh, normally they're quite dull normally you get pictures uh, have a look on um the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast discussion group on Facebook. I post lots of pictures on there, also on my blog. The Richard Rhodes Henley one, I posted loads of crime scene photos. And what you get is a picture of a chair, a picture of a desk, a picture of a wall, a picture of a door, a picture of an outside of a house. There is a crime scene photo of uh, Nora Upchurch. You have to go to my blog for this. Um, I didn't post it anywhere else because it is... A real crime scene photograph and it is shocking they put it in the national archive files with everything else i went oh a nice picture of nora that's nice nice picture of frederick upchurch that's uh, frederick field that's nice and out of nowhere was this picture of nora upchurch close-up picture of her face with the uh green belt around her neck after she'd been strangled two or three days after she'd been found Oh, God, it was horrific. Even though it was a black and white photo, God, it was horrific. Because right next to it was a really beautiful picture of Nora Upchurch. If you've been on my social media, media, you'll see a picture of Nora Upchurch. She is, oh, she's beautiful. She really is. She really looks like, a, she, she looks beautiful and she looks like a really nice lady as well. And then next to it, I had the picture of her, her death. And it was pretty shocking. Uh, especially as I'd learnt a lot about her life by that point. But the great thing about crime scene photos is it fills in the blanks that a lot of these police reports and witness statements can't. So it, it tells you, um, so like if you're in a room, it tells you the size of the room, it tells you uh, how well lit it is, what the weather is like outside, or if you are outside, whether it's snowing. Um, I actually found that really useful with the Blackout Ripper case. In all 1,600 pages, no one had mentioned the weather. But on one photo, I noticed that it was thick snow, which was really useful. You might not think it's useful, but it explains why everyone was wrapped up, why one of the victims was wearing two, two sets of underwear, which I found really baffling. Um, but also it told, told a lot because um, I know the police were looking for footprints. And I was like... How can you find footprints on a tarmac road? Or as it was a cobblestone road. But actually it was snowing. It was deep snow. Which was why the police were so interested in, in the footprints. Um, so crime scene photos are often very dull. But they can be really useful. Um, and also in there sometimes you find uh, court transcripts. Court transcripts are often dull. Very dull. You don't learn a lot from uh, the court case themselves because it's really just a precy of the evidence and it's just really... All what you're trying to do is find out did the person do it or not. That really is it. 
Um, but what you can do is because a lot of uh, a lot of killers do like to give testimony. They like to give their own evidence. So you learn a lot about them, their personality through the way they speak. Because someone has sat down and wrote down exactly what they said, and you can tell whether someone is an, like an arrogant son of a bitch or whether they're contrite or it's really useful. A bizarre thing I found, especially with Sir Bernard Spilsbury, who was the father of forensic science, uh, he would open every single um, victim's autopsy report saying she was a well-nourished woman. Every single one I've read so far. I don't know why he's obsessed with that. He's obsessed with whether whether the woman is well-nourished. Absolutely baffling. But no court tra- transcripts are really useful as well. So, so yeah, it, uh, the, there's many things that you can learn from the court file. Um, quite often, um, really useful, especially as these women were prostitutes, you would get their previous uh, uh, criminal records, which was really useful. Gives you a timeline to tell you uh, how far back... Um, they'd been a prostitute for um with the blackout ripper case i really focused on uh the victims lives and especially their early lives because i wanted to know where these people had come from where they come from what they were doing what they were about um one lady i because i do the blackout ripper on on the walk i knew very little about i think i knew about two lines worth roughly that she was a uh, she was like a manager of a chemist I knew her age, I knew her name, and that was about it. But with this, going through this file now, I've learned so much about her life. I know her marital history. I know I know whether she had any boyfriends. I know all about her family. I know where she was educated. I know about her life. I know that she had mental health problems. I know whether she smoked, whether she drank. I know exactly what clothes she wear. I, I knew that she was susceptible to cold weather. I knew what kind of food she likes. All of these details might not seem useful, but when you're telling the story about about the victim, it really leads, it progresses you down an avenue. So you'd so when she met her killer, I knew how she would react. I knew that I knew that she'd had a long day. I knew that she'd started at six a.m. and she was murdered at one a.m. I knew that she'd had her her dinner late at about twelve about. Yeah, about 12 p.m. I knew that she was tired. I knew that she was looking to go to bed. I knew exactly where she was murdered and the route she'd walked from the restaurant to the place where she was staying that night. I knew how she was feeling. I knew that she'd lost her job. I knew that she was heading uh, out of London and heading back to Grimsby. I knew that she'd um, sent a letter to her family and that she was upset. So when she met the killer... I knew that she was quite a timid person as well. I knew that she suffered with depression. I knew that she was naturally not a confident person, that she was quite internal and that she wouldn't. She's not the type of person who would go, there's an attractive man. I'm going to go with him. He seems nice. I know that she's the type of woman who would shy away. Maybe she tried to escape from him. Maybe that's it. I don't know. I'm still working out this case now. There's like eight hour gap between when she finished her dinner and when she was found. So working out how she died, all of these pieces come together. All these pieces, it's kind of like if you learn about her life, you can learn slowly about her death. Hopefully. It's not always easy. Now, obviously, uh, 
the blessing that I have is that uh, I have hindsight, which the police don't have. Obviously, the police were dealing with it on a fast turnaround, like literally six days um, dealing with this case. Um, I've got the blessing that this murder happened in 1940. Uh, I've got a case file that's about 1,600 pages long. It's probably about a foot deep. Uh, it contains all of the evidence. So I can actually go through all the files and go, okay, this person... Say, for example, one of the victims was seen with a man at about 11.15, which is about about 11.15, which is about an hour and a half before she was murdered. Now, one of the neighbours saw this lady with this victim, well, saw the victim with a man, and she gives a great detailed description of the man. But I know, and this is what the police then wouldn't have known, is I know that's not the Blackout Ripper, because we know who the Blackout Ripper is. We know what he looks like. We know his height. We know his hair colour. We know whether he wears glasses. We know his clothes. We know how he talked. We know his accent. It's all... It's really useful. It's like sometimes there was one person who said they thought they knew who the Blackout Ripper was and the details were great. His height was right. Where he was was right. The job that he did was right. He, They kind of looked the same. And I was like, oh, this is him. He even had like a, a, a gun in this in a similar style. And I was like, oh, this is fantastic. This is the Blackout Ripper. And then the police sent a memo back saying... Uh, can you confirm what accent he has? And the publican who uh, thought they'd found the, the Blackout Ripper said, yes, he has uh, a northern accent. It could be Scottish. It's like everything crumbled by that point. Everything was like he doesn't have a Scottish accent. In fact, he's well-spoken. He's well-spoken. He's kind of, kind, of, uh, of kind of posh London. So, damn it. That's where it all collapses. But hindsight is really useful. Also, um, as I mentioned before, what I try to do with these cases is to visit the murder locations. Uh, they're really useful. It's all very well looking at a picture, but it's when you turn up to a location and you look at the building, you get the sights, you get the sounds, you get the smells, you get to learn the distance between various places, you get to see where, uh, what the victim saw, what the killer saw. Hopefully, you get to see, you get to follow the route of where they walked. Um, now, if you've seen recently I, on uh, Facebook, on the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast discussion group, I've mentioned that three times, uh, three times lucky, uh, I did a little video about how close all of these murders are. But this it seems to be going well, so what I'll do every week is I will post a video showing you where the killer walked, where they were, what places looked like, because I think it's kind of useful. Um, but also on these murder locations, I, I try and pick up sounds. So when I'm visiting sound, visiting locations and uh, uh, to see to do my research, what I also do is pick up sounds while I'm there, which is what you hear on the Murder Mile True Crime podcast. Um, so for you right now, here's a little clip that I did last Sunday. Uh, I was doing some research. I was on Old Compton Street, and I was picking up some sounds. Here's my clip. So what I'm currently doing at the moment is I'm on Old Compton Street. If you're probably wondering why I'm talking to you, uh, this is what I do in the mornings. It's not just talk to you. Uh, I go onto on streets when I'm going to do a new podcast. And what I try to do is record the accurate, accurate sounds of the streets. So 
even though I'm only using just my smartphone at the moment, what I'm trying to do is pick up sounds that you might hear on the street, which makes, I, I hope, the Murder Mile podcast more authentic. So at the moment, I'm on Old Compton Street. It's early, well, it's 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning, so the streets are quite quiet. There's very little traffic. But the great thing is you've got hubbub, you've got people opening and closing their shops. You can hear tills. You can just hear a taxi going past. Um, just above me now, there's some, there's some crows fighting with pigeons which is fantastic so i think that will appear in some of the some of the later episodes coming up you can hear people walking by you can hear a man going past with really loud jangly keys on his pocket and so when you do hear sounds on the murder mile podcast it really is the real street it's the real place i physically go out here and try and record something for you to make it authentic um that's it uh hope you enjoy this it's going to be an interesting podcast i hope and uh speak to you soon hope you enjoyed that that was interesting maybe not (laughs) Uh, another way that i research these cases is often by meeting with the victims families Uh, the more that i do my tours and the more that i do uh, the murder mile true crime podcast people are actually starting to come to me now and saying i hear you do this i hear you investigate murders uh in within the west end uh, can you deal with this case this was such and such which is really interesting so soon i should be meeting the great niece of ginger ray this is very exciting uh they asked me to do a, a private tour for them which i will be doing uh, i'll be doing ginger ray isn't on the tour uh but what i'll be doing is a big special section just for them and i i, I hope to meet with ginger ray's family and discuss even more about her life so what i might do i might try and record some of that if they'll let me um and you can hear more about the private life of ginger ray so that's all about the research of the making of murder mile uh, obviously an important thing uh, with murder mile as you probably know is the music And we have a nice special message here from Eric Stein of Cult With No Name. Hi, this is Eric Stein. And together with John Books, we make up Cult With No Name. And we produce the music for the Murder Mile podcast. You can read all about us, our history and our discography at cultwithnoname.com. And of course, um, if there are any cases that you really want me to cover, uh, any that you think I haven't haven't thought about, uh, or if you just want to send me a question, please do on any of the social media forums. Uh, I'm I'm really approachable. I'm always looking for people to talk to me. I love it when people ask me questions. Uh, so please do send me any questions. You can email me. Uh, I'm on Facebook. Uh, on Murder Mile True Crime Podcast. Go to the discussion group. You can chat with me all day on there. Um, I'm on Instagram, Murder Mile True Crime Podcast. I'm on Twitter. Uh, where else am I? Everywhere, everywhere. Pinterest. Oh, God, you name it. Anyway, uh, if you have any questions, please do ask. Now, I posted recently asking for some questions, uh, for anyone to ask me some questions. And some of the fabulous true crime podcasts out there have actually replied to me, which was great. So, Here are some questions from fellow podcasters. Right. First one comes from the Corpus Delicti podcast. I'm going to have to re-say that again because I stumbled over it. The Corpus Delicti podcast. And their question was, what's the hardest case 
you have ever had to research? Fantastic question. Thank you, Corpus Delicti podcast. Um, I'd say the hardest one was actually the Denmark Place fire. Episode one of the Murder Mile True Crime podcast. It's on the tour as well, but a different angle on it. Um, it started as, as a, a myth almost, almost like a, an urban legend. Um, someone had mentioned it to me, a local, who just said, did you know about the fire that took place on, on Poland Street? Obviously, he got the street wrong. Um, and I wrote it down and I started asking around about it. And very few people knew about it. Very few people, lo locals, knew about it. And I go, did you know, know about the nightclub that caught fire? And they're like, nope, never heard of it. And the problem is that the file is held in the National Archives for 97 years. So it won't be available till January 2079. By then, I'll be 103 years old. Um, so that case has been particularly difficult. Uh, it took me almost three years to research. I had to use many unconventional sources. Uh, obviously, I used uh, Fire Brigade investigation um, reports, which were really useful. But what I did was I spoke to locals who hadn't been there on the night, but they knew the club. They knew the layout. They knew people who'd been there. They introduced me to people who'd been there. Um, I, As I mentioned last time, I went through a history of like salsa, salsa music in the 1970s in london the underground music scene um the hot dog wars of the 1970s 1980s with the hot dog vendors rival gangs in soho so i had to find an unusual way to get in to tell this story but i think it's made for quite an interesting story and i think even though it was a hard case to research i think for me that laid the groundwork for murder mile in the fact that i from that point onwards, I was like, right, I'm not going to sit there and tell just basic murder cases from now on. I'm not going to tell you just the details of what happened. A man turned up, was overcharged for a drink, poured petrol through the letterbox and, and the building caught fire and 36 people died. That's quite boring. What I like to do is tell you the lie. What was going on in people's minds? What was the lives of the people who died there? I think that makes it more real. And that was that was the start of Murder Mile, really. Murder Mile podcast. Another question here from uh, Paul at the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Fantastic podcast. Please do check it out. Paul's really good on, on uh, the social media as well. He's really chatty as well. So um, join his uh, discussion group as well. But join the Murder Mile True Crime podcast, podcast discussion group. Be, I'd love to talk to you. I sound desperate now. That's really sad. Uh, Paul at the <laughs> True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Uh, his question was, has any other podcast beaten you to a case that you were all set to that you were all set to cover? Well, that's an interesting uh, question. Uh, it has actually happened twice so far. Um, the first time, actually, on the same day. So Adam, who's absolutely lovely man, who does. Uh, the UK true crime podcast, a really good, very in-depth um, true crime podcast. He's very good at analysis. He's really good. Uh, on the, exactly the same day, we posted um, an episode about David Copeland, who's the nail bomber. Uh, and that was my episode five of the bombing of the Admiral Duncan. Now, what I actually did on that podcast was I told it from the perspective of the people who died 
and I refused to tell it from the perspective of David Copeland, the killer. I didn't feel that he warranted uh, the publicity that he craved so much. Whereas, interestingly, Adam on the UK True Crime podcast, he'd actually, uh, he told more about the life of David Copeland, but also he, um, he focused more on the barman who survived the bombing of the Admiral Duncan, but was actually murdered in, in a homophobic attack a couple of years later. So interestingly, even though we covered the same case at the same time, we actually created a nice kind of supportive, uh, two podcasts actually supported each other. It was actually really good. And it's hopefully something that me and some of my uh, fellow UK true crime podcasters are hoping to do more of in the future. Unfortunately, there has been. <laughs> Paul does ask. Paul from a True Crime Enthusiast podcast did actually say, "Has any other podcast beaten you to a case you were all set to to cover?" Uh, and that is actually true. Yes, it was Paul himself. Paul doesn't actually know this, um, but on the day he was about to launch his episode on on Victor Castigador, uh, which I think it's referred to as the Human Torch Murders. I had just finished recording that episode. Literally, I had just finished recording. I was having a cup of coffee. I was like, right, I will start editing this afternoon. Switched on social media. And there's, <laughs> there's Paul going, here's my new episode. And I was like, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> so uh, I had to scrap that episode. I'm going to have to rewrite it. You will hear it soon. It is a fantastic murder case. Paul did a fantastic job on it. Uh, but what I'm going to do is do uh, a different spin on the case because there's always different angles that you can do. Uh, so look out for that episode two coming soon. I think it's also known as the Killer in Man Manila. I can't say it. Killer in Manila. <sighs> Next question was from uh, Luke's English podcast. Um, for my overseas listeners, uh, many of you probably already know Luke from Luke's English Podcast. Luke is a very good friend of mine. Uh, he runs a fabulous podcast called Luke's English Podcast. And he interviews interesting people, like myself. Um, and this helps people who are learning to speak English to um, understand English in a more kind of natural way. As opposed to, where is the beach? He just, It's a conversation. And if I throw in things that... Uh, new learners of English might not understand Luke kind of explains it to his audience it's a really good thing so Luke's question was uh, what countries are the best and worst at murder fantastic question Luke thank you very much um, now obviously the lowest crime rate of any country in the world is Luxembourg now Luxembourg is only about a, uh, about a thousand square miles and only has about 600,000 uh, people living there so per capita uh, they actually have the lowest murder rate of anywhere in the world um, now al also many of the murders are quite boring there but so what I've decided to do is draw you a little list of some of my favorite um, bizarre murders that I found from around the world so I hope this entertains you Luke first of course is uh, the unsolved murderer he's known as Charlie Chopoff this happened between 1972 and 1973. Uh, he was a sadist who they nicknamed Charlie Chopoff because he had a fondness for mutilating the penis of his victims. Normally they were kind of uh, young black children 
uh, in the Manhattan area of kind of New York. They thought they knew who it was. They thought it was a guy called Erno Solo, who was a, a serial child abductor, uh, who, uh, who confessed to being Charlie Chopoff. Um, but he was unfit to stand trial, and he was sent back to a mental asylum. So was Erno Solo Charlie Chopoff? We shall never know. A fantastic murder case, obviously. Serial killer uh, is from India. In 1989, uh, there was a serial killer called Stone Man. And what he would do, he would brutally bash in the skulls of at least... It, it was about 13 homeless people in Calcutta. And he did another 12 in Bombay. And he would do this using a very large rock. Which in some cases weigh, weighed as much as 30 kilos. And he did this while his victims slept. They've no idea who he is. They've no idea whether it's one person, whether it's a group, where it's a series of copycat killings. Um, but that's still unsolved. That was 1989, and it's still it's still unsolved today. Um, the other one I absolutely love, shouldn't love murders, but sometimes you do. This one's fascinating. This one is called The Doodler, and it happened between 1994 and 1995. Um, five gay men, obviously this is an era in San, Fran San Francisco in the 1970s where you couldn't just come out as a gay man, even though San Francisco is kind of a very gay-friendly area. America, mid-1970s, you couldn't admit to being a gay man. So the doodler would go into gay clubs, he'd pick up a gay man that you liked, He'd lure them back to remote locations around San Francisco Bay Area. And having met them, what he would do, he'd sit by the bay and he'd pull out a notepad and a pen, a pencil, and he'd ask to sketch them. He'd ask to draw a, photo, uh, a sketch of them. And he'd sketch his victims just before he'd kill them. Now, there's five men that he, we know he definitely killed. It's possible he did as many as 14 uh, and there were at least four attempted murders, murders as well. Obviously, the police said, if you were a possible victim, please come forward. But because, obviously, it was an Ill illegal to be gay in America in the 1970s, many gay men, quite rightly, didn't. That was a doodler. Another fascinating case, unsolved as well. I love unsolved cases. They're really exciting. Um, another question from Luke's English podcast. Sorry, Luke. Luke's very good at two questions, doing two questions. He can multitask. He's a man. He, Luke's other question was, in which country is your podcast most popular? Well, looking at my stats, obviously it goes in this order. United States first, United Kingdom second. Come on, United Kingdom. Uh, Australia third and Canada fourth. And <laughs> looking at the far end of my stats... I've noticed that I have one listener in each of these countries. If this is you, hello. I have one listener in Armenia, Guam, Macau and Nigeria. Why? I have no idea. I also found out the other day that apparently I'm very big in a place called Oshkosh, Wisconsin. If anyone knows anything about Oshkosh, Wisconsin, or anyone who lives there, or why I'm popular in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, please let me know. Or, or if you are my listener from Oshkosh, please say hello and I'll give you a shout out on the next episode. Uh, and my final question, my final question, of course, comes from the fabulous Christy at Dark Divide. Uh, new true crime podcast, 
You're going to hear a promo for this in a couple of weeks. Uh, really, really interesting podcast. If you like things that are well-researched, well-told, nice production value, Dark Divide is just for you. Christie's question is, what's a case you've personally... See, my dyslexia is kicking in now. Uh, what's a case you're personally... Uh, see, this is why I don't read. Uh, what's a case you've... What's a... What's a case you're personally super intrigued by slash interested in, but is... <sighs> Let's go fast into it. Come on, Michael. What's a case you're personally super interested by slash interested in, but is such an enormous undertaking and too sensitive to cover? <sighs> I had to take a bit of a run-up at that. Okay. Basically, Christie's question was, which case was great but too sensitive? Um, I would have to go back and say the bombing of the Admiral Duncan, uh, episode five, the uh, David Copeland, the uh, the nail bomber. Um, obviously, I work in this area. I work in Soho. I know loads of people there. It's a very recent murder. It was only 1999, so that's, what, 19 years away. Um I on one of my tours recently, there was uh, we were going round Soho, walking round Old Compton Street. We went past uh, the Admiral Duncan. A man turned to me on the tour and he said, "Do you do the bombing of the Admiral Duncan on the tour?" And I said, "I deliberately don't uh, because it's a little bit too sensitive. I know loads of people in the area, and I just don't want to offend people. But I, I, that's why I did it in a, a very sensitive way on the podcast." And he was like, "I'm glad you said that." Because my friend died there. And that's exactly why I, I don't do it on the tour. It's like, you just, do you know, I want to do, I want to do justice for the case, but you just don't want to upset people. Um, so with the podcast, um, that's why I told the victim's story. I really didn't focus on David Copeland at, at all. He was a racist. He was a nutter. He was uh, in little man syndrome. He was desperate for attention. That's why he did this, not to stir up trouble. He just wanted his name in the press. I refuse to give him any airtime. I'm focusing on, on the victims. And uh, what I tried to do was focus on how he was a deluded man. And he tried to divide all these communities like the black community in Brixton and the Asian community in Brick Lane and the gay community in Soho. But what he actually did was there was already a deep divide in Soho between the gay community and the police. And what he actually did was help repair that divide. He actually made them closer together. He actually made the police realise we're doing this entirely the wrong way. We actually need to be working with the gay, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community. We need to work together and make stronger links. And that ha that happened. That helped. So uh, the dickhead who, who set off a bomb and killed three people and injured so many others... He actually helped make Soho a much, much more beautiful place. So those are the questions from the podcasters. Thank you so much for that. That was really cool. Um, before we finish, many thank yous. Obviously, there's been many people who've left great reviews and have been really helpful on social media. Uh, and have just been really kind and generous. So what I want to do is, because I rarely do this. You can hear a coot behind me. 
getting really annoyed. Um, he's telling me to wrap up. I'm going to just run through some names of people who've been really useful and really helpful and left reviews and just been really lovely. So, on iTunes, we have Miss Drifty, Peggy Moostu, Arvas, True Crime Enthusiast, which is obviously Paul from True Crime Enthusiast Podcast, Apple Rabbits, Stratch74, RoboManJ997, Aske, Susie Brace. Thank you, Susie Brace, for your five-star comments, but a one-star, one-star. That's weird, but I love it. I love it. It kept me amused. Um, Jay Shoutex, Utilitarian Femme, Dame Dana, Swizzle Rock, Tony101, T358892W17. That's catchy. Elevator, Jeffrey with one F, Erin at Old Crime No Cattle Podcast, New Cribble, Bolly Girl 21, Liz Lucy, and Kerryne 54. Those really, uh, all of those people left absolutely heartwarming reviews. Uh, they really did make, make my heart burst and various parts of myself chuckle. So thank you so much for that. Uh, there were loads of people who also left reviews as well, but didn't leave names. So unfortunately, I, I don't know who you are. Uh, I can't read out your name, but thank you so much to everyone who left reviews. I really do love you. Really lovely people are on uh, Twitter as well. Miss Scorpio, 1101. Barbie Chambers, Mitchell Norris, JRT Design, JH Barron, Guccius73, Antu Wessels, Prof Meller, Terence Tell, my, my good friend Luke Thompson from, uh, from At English Podcast, Crafty Mother, Emily T, which is Emily G. Thompson, and of course, Miss Story. XXS Missy XXS1. Uh, as well as on Instagram, Amy Smith and Paul Little Nell. On Facebook, of course, we have Craig Baldwin, Claire Glasson, Chell Ray Moore, Karen Clooster, Red Bennett, Karen Guy Hofstrand Eason, Sarah Ledbetter, Kate Harris, Ed Hawkins, Mike Featherston, Hannah Mirza, Laura Cole, Ricky from the True Crime Podcast uh, Facebook group, Mike Brown, Shay Maloney, Jason Abercrombie, Erin Fleming, Megan Moe, Bob Jones, Karen Silverstein Rodrigue, Lisa Radent, Lisa Henschel, and Holly Satchel. <gasps> there were loads of people on there, and I'm sorry if I absolutely missed anyone. I was going through all of my details the last day, trying to find everyone who'd left me loads of lovely comments and quotes, and I'd just been really helpful and done retweets, and anyone who's helped me out over the last couple of months i really really do thank you so much as well as big thank yous to everyone in the true crime podcast community everyone has been loving and caring and fantastic and smashing <gasps> almost done podcast of the week uh is a podcast called blood on the rocks uh it's narrated uh <coughs> written and narrated by uh ash k taylor uh, what what Ashke does is does uh, myths and murders and true crime with a real dash of humour. There's if you like uh, grisly details with lots of chat, then this could be the absolute perfect podcast for you. I'm going to play their promo. This is Blood on the Rocks. Give it a go. Hello and welcome to a promo for Blood on the Rocks, a podcast on all things creepy, morbid, or otherwise dark. I'm your host, Ashke Taylor. 
Join me and various guest hosts as we cover a whole load of subjects. We'll show you the world of serial killers, accidents, hauntings, black metal, and more. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and all those other fancy podcast platforms. Our core and profanity content may vary. And that was the end of the extra mile. I'm slightly exhausted. (laughs) Right, so next week we're going to be back to our usual pace. We're going to go back to doing um, proper stories. I'm just going to sit down and start writing the next one for you now. This is going to be a four-part special, not the Blackout Ripper, because I still need a lot of time to deal with that. This is going to be a four-part special on many of the murders that take place in the, the canal systems in London. Obviously, London has a canal system. I live on a canal boat. Uh, and this was a murder I was kind of involved in, in that I accidentally... I accidentally drove over uh, the corpse in my boat. So that'll be the next episode. Four episodes all about canal deaths. All of them really grisly. You will love it. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. Do have yourself a lovely day. And if you're going to bed, sleep well. See you soon. Bye. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.